and welcome to a special episode of Fully Scored. We're releasing today's episode on the 1st of July 2021, which is Canada Day. So in honour of that, this episode is our Canadian special. Grab yourself a Tim Hortons and settle down in your ice hockey jersey as we talk all things Canada, from Beavers to Banff, Toronto to Trudeau, and Maple Leafs to Montreal. We've covered it all. Well, some of it anyway. What gem from the repertoire could we use for our special other than Morley Calvert's Canadian folk song suite? To help uncover the history and unpack the music, I'm joined by Canadian Salvationist musician Philip Raymond. For our interview segment, this episode I'm joined by Craig Lewis, the Salvation Army's Territorial Music Director for the Canada and Bermuda Territory. Craig has a brilliant and energetic passion for Salvation Army music making, so as well as talking to him about his life, we talk about the mission, purpose and relevance of Salvation Army bands in today's society. An uplifting interview indeed. Oh, and of course, as is now traditional, Craig will be put to the test in Band Mastermind, so make sure you stick around to the end of the episode to hear how he gets on. Could we perhaps have a new contender for the top of the leaderboard? As ever, if you enjoy this episode, let us know. You can find our social media presence lingering on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Why not leave us a review, if it's five star of course. Also, did you know that according to the podcast stats on listennotes.com, we're in the top 5% of all podcasts globally. So thank you ever so much to all your support and listens. Really is quite an achievement. Anyway... Get your maple syrup ready and hold on to your totem poles. We're off to Canada. Well, thank you ever so much, Craig, for joining us on Fully Scored. It's really great to have you here. I'm looking forward to speaking to you, getting to know a bit more about you and your life as a Salvationist musician. First things first, though, how are you keeping? Well, hi, Matthew. It's great to be here with you and uh, on Fully Scored. I'm doing really well, all things considered, uh, in the middle of a pandemic. uh, Lots to be grateful for and thankful for and uh, always smiling. Brilliant. That's absolutely fantastic to hear. So over the series of the next half an hour or so, we're going to be learning a little bit more about your life and your thoughts on Salvation Army music making. But my first question for you goes back in, in history a little bit. Could you tell us about where you were born and where you grew up? Sure. I was born in Toronto uh, in Canada. I'm an officer's kid, though, so I grew up all over, uh, mostly in Ontario, which is Um, sort of center of Canada, but did spend four very important formative years in my teens in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is right on the Atlantic Ocean. And I actually consider that really to be my home as far as officers, kids think of somewhere as home. Fantastic. So growing up as an officer's kid, as you've said, um, you must have been introduced to the Salvation Army at quite a young age. Have you got any memories, you know, of your first interactions with the Army? 
Well, so I was six months old when my folks went into training college. So it's really the only thing I know. Um, but as a kid, an officer's kid, my early recollections are at this little small corps being dragged to everything um, where you're there. It was one of those old corps where we lived on the back of the corps. And so we, um, army life was just life. And so that's sort of my earliest recollections. And then I have three brothers. I'm number two of four boys. So uh, our army life became uh, that of the, you know, the guys doing the chairs, cleaning the floors, moving things around the church. So my whole life uh, until I went to university was really heavily centered on everything in uh, core life. Fantastic. And how about your sort of musical introductions? Were you introduced to music from a very early age or did that come slightly later in your life? Yeah, my dad is a keen bandsman. Even now in his retirement, he's the core bandmaster at his core in Barrie, Ontario. Uh, so I was always surrounded by it. Uh, he had LPs from um, the competition bands, as we called them then, or, or uh, as well as the Salvation Army bands. Uh, when I was nine, he joined the Canadian staff band on tuba for a couple of years. And uh, that was really when I remember starting to really get into listening to music. Uh, not, not a player yet at that point of any uh, skill, but I can remember sitting at the hi-fi and playing a, a couple of Black Dyke records um, all the time. And uh, one was uh, Padstow Lifeboat with, by Malcolm Arnold, which I just loved, thought it was the coolest sound uh, picture ever. And then the other one was John Cloughs playing um, Grandfather's Clock. And uh, that sort of introduced me to sort of technique and skill and what uh, what a virtuoso could do on an instrument. So those are sort of my early days of being attracted to band music and sort of starting to to hear what it should sound like. And did you start off playing the trombone or was there a journey through a few other instruments to get there? There was a long journey to get there. Uh, the trombone for me was an instrument of last resort. Um, I actually started as a as a percussionist, as a snare drummer took lessons with Ron Reed, who was a Canadian staff band drummer for a long time. Um, then I started on cornet like most kids do because you never wanna miss a cornet player, right? So I always start them there. And, uh, but I just kept shuffling down the deck, cornet to horn to baritone, um, not making any progress. Uh, it wasn't until uh, a trombone was put in my hand when I was about 13 that uh, the light bulb went off and I thought, oh, I really like this. This is something I could do might be because of the long periods of rests and whole notes, but uh, it suited my abilities at the time and I fell in love with it. Fantastic. So a magical moment then when the trombone entered your hands. It was. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. And other than those that you've already mentioned, are there any other influences that had a big impact on you uh, in your early days of learning music? Sure, there was this one gentleman I credit with a lot. His name was Don Giles, and this was when I was in Halifax, the guy who put the trombone in my hand. And uh, he really taught me how to play trombone. Uh, but what I didn't realize at the time, he was really just investing in me as a young kid. And the trombone just happened to be the thing. Now he was a trombone player, retired Navy cook. And uh, when I look back, I don't even know if he was a great musician or not. All I know is he really encouraged me and worked with me and spent time with me. And that made a huge difference to my life, to my path and uh, to my Christian walk. And so I'm really passionate now about connecting those uh, older generations with the younger one because I, I've seen what can happen there. And then when I was uh, 15, my family moved up back to Hamilton, Ontario. And uh, my core bandmaster at the time was Brian Burdett, who was also the Canadian staff bandmaster. 
And he was really great at investing in young people as well. Um, and so those are two key influences that sort of outside of my dad that really helped solidify my interest and passion for brass band music in the Salvation Army. Excellent. And we'll come back to unpack a little bit more about your influences on young people in your role now in a moment. But uh, one more question on your sort of upbringing, starting the trombone. When you first had it in your hands and the light bulbs flashed and the one chose the wizard and all that, did you know that you wanted to continue um, to pursue music further or did that sort of come at a later point in life that you knew that was something you want to be heavily involved in? Uh, it's, it's funny, it just sort of, I think growing up in the house I did with band music and Salvation Army life, it was just like, uh, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be involved in Salvation Army music ministry. And uh, it, it did not become my vocation. It didn't become what I studied at school or university. Um, my life music work was really focused on Salvation Army and core ministry. Um, like many of our Salvationist musicians uh, around the world since we've started. Um, and so that's why I'm passionate about it. Because um, it really just, it just, once I started playing in the band, it was like, this is what I'm supposed to do as part of giving my gifts and talents to God. And I thought the ministry was incredibly valuable, and I still do. Excellent. And you alluded to not studying music there. Perhaps you could just give us a little bit of an insight into what you did go on to study. Sure. I, uh, I went on to study political science, of all things. <clears throat> went to McMaster University in Hamilton and uh, had a great time there. Um, and uh, really, honestly, wanted to be the prime minister of the country. That's not an exaggeration. Um, came out of school and ended up getting right into commercial finance. And that really became my life for the next uh, almost 20 years, um, financing everything from uh, vehicle car fleets to hospital equipment and eventually ending up being the finance manager for Cessna Business Jets in Canada, which was a lot of fun um, and, uh, and a very cool industry to be in. But, but even then I wasn't, uh, I wasn't fulfilled because I wasn't called to that. So all the way through sort of working in that sort of finance sector, did you always have that sort of niggling that that wasn't what you felt you should be doing? Or was there a certain moment where you realized actually your calling lies elsewhere? Uh, it was always one of those things. So I always felt called to ministry, but I didn't feel called to be an officer. And that was always a challenge. And I can always remember sitting in the staff band at commissioning events and they'd have, if you're called, come stand on the front of the stage, that kind of thing. And I always felt called, but I wasn't called to that specific ministry. So it took a long time for me to figure out, oh, I could be called to ministry and not be a, not be a pastor, not be an officer, that there were other ways and other avenues to use my professional skills in ministry. And so uh, I actually credit the 2008 financial crisis um, when Wall Street went down and it was no longer cool to fly a business jet, Cessna pulled out of the country. And uh, it gave me a great opportunity to search then for what my calling was and pursue it. And that really was the pivotal moment for me that to leave sort of behind the commercial finance world and move into working for Christian charities and nonprofits. And that's really when I started to be, be fulfilled that even as a fundraiser for an aviation charity, for missionaries, that I really was um, fulfilling my calling in ministry, even by being a fundraiser. Fantastic. And that's brilliant to hear that you're feeling 
more where you should be and where God's placed you in your life. So you're now the Territorial Music Director for Canada and Bermuda Territory. How yes. did you end up in that role? Uh, it was, I was as surprised as anyone else, to be honest. Uh, again, um, the, I don't have a formal music education. I'm a salvationist musician. That's what I am. I'm a salvationist musician. Uh, but when, when they were looking, um, I following on the heels of Major Kevin Metcalf, who had done a tremendous job and uh, was a, a member of the staff band that I had shared with and a mentor type. Um, he was moved to be a core officer and the opportunity came open for the position. And I decided to approach it differently. Um, I approached it with a business plan instead of a music plan. And uh, I'm a big guy about deliverables and performance indicators and metrics. And so I sort of went in and with that kind of pitch, here's the business plan, here's what we can do, here's how we can do it. And uh, fortunately for me, the Salvation Army at the time uh, was willing to take that risk and, uh, and give it a shot and uh, been doing it. It'll be six years next month in the role. Brilliant, it's really great to hear that story. And uh, in your role, what are some of the key things that you're striving to achieve? What would your business plan be for perhaps a post-COVID sort of recovery in the world? Sure. So when I started, um, it was sort of really figuring out what, what the future looked like. And uh, so I really decided early on my role was to equip, resource and inspire. Uh, and that was where we started. And we, and we did that for the first three or four years and have created lots of resources for everything from brass courses and theory courses. A lot of those were in existence. We just revamped and tweaked and made them modern for the current age. Uh, but then after about three or four years, we started to realize it doesn't matter the resources. It's all about the leader at the local level. Um, they can, we can put all the resources out if the local leader doesn't engage or, or use them, and not just ours, any of them then our core groups won't uh, grow or be as effective as they could. So in the last year or two, we've really felt passionate about connecting with the leaders, developing leaders, investing in the leaders at the core level, because we think that's sort of really where the, uh, where the rubber hits the road. The people in the congregation can love what we do, but they have no influence over how things are run. Um, even people in the music groups, uh, I'm a member of my core band. I don't have a say in how it's run, nor should I. Um, but so it started to click that, oh, it's those leaders we need to invest in. And so we've been really passionate about that. And as we come out of COVID, we are then going to move to a bit more of a model. It's a business model where we try and figure out for cores or regions, whether they sort of have an account manager type that is really invested in what's going on in that core, knows the people, knows the leaders, and uh, really helps tailor customized solutions to help their music leaders be more effective in using music for evangelism, worship, growth, outreach, discipleship, mentorship, all of those things. So that's really the plan as we come out of this is how do we really dig deep into the core life and connect them with what they need uh, at the music and worship level. Inspiring to hear, that's fantastic. And I know that Canada really at the moment has a very much a thriving young people's sort of music scene especially in the brass band world and you're very much at the helm of that how do you inspire young people to want to be Salvation Army musicians and keep them involved 
Well, I think uh, we went through our own struggles here in the territory where um, sort of when when the worship team movement kicked in and, you know, there were those struggles. And to be honest, we did lose a generation in the middle there um, from the 25 to 45, let's say, that sort of just lost interest. But we believe that especially brass band music is a valuable thing that we have. It's a little bit of a niche thing. Um, and young people love to make music. They love to belong to things that are worthwhile. So it became um, us getting back to encouraging kids that um, it's not, you don't just have to be a bandsman or this, you can be it all. And the, key, and the young people we have in our territory these days are very eclectic. They'll listen to all kinds of different things on their, on their uh, iPhone. So why would we expect they only choose one? And so we just started to be open that you don't have to choose, you can be part of all of them. And that sort of lended to us being what we call blended worship, that we're all better together and creating opportunities. And our young people have just sort of grasped onto that, but the key that is also getting the older folks to realize what an important role they have in welcoming those young people, encouraging them, just sitting beside them and helping them know what's going on in life, in music, in banding. And I think the more focus we have on that whole discipleship mentorship aspect and are very intentional about it, young people just want to be cared for. And uh, we all want to be cared for. And so especially our young people. And so if we can just invest in them, welcome them in, include them and help them through some of those hard teen years, I think that's the best we can ask for. And they'll feel loved and they'll feel part of it. And it's a community. And so that's really what we're pushing. And that's so exciting to hear, you know, it's not just about the music, the Salvation Army banding and singing and, and all sorts of music making, you know, it is about that community that's perhaps quite unique to our church yeah. in a way, which is brilliant. Absolutely. So, I, I don't think it's about music at all, to be honest. It's about relationship. Music is just the hook for us. And yes, we can use it for evangelism and to support worship, but it's really about relationship in a community. And that's a, that's a big a big focus for, should be for all our music groups. Excellent. And again, we'll come back and maybe unpick that a little bit more later in the interview. But now I'd like to talk a bit more about you as a player. And uh, for many, many years, you're part of the Canadian staff band and also a soloist with a band. Have you got any highlights from your time in the band? Yeah, it's, uh, it's full of highlights. I spent... Uh just over 24 years in the band and about 14 is the principal trombone. Um, again, as a kid, I only ever wanted to make the band sort of thing. And uh, so I'm as surprised as anyone else with the career I had with it. Um, lots of highlights, uh, obviously uh, the biggest one, ISB 120, which we just had the 10th year anniversary of recently. And I can't believe that was 10 years ago. Um, that was a huge highlight for any of us that were, that took part um, so that's big, but uh, I think what I miss the most are the bus trips um, when you go away to a core and the way impact you can have on a community, because um, there's so many different stories and, uh, and experiences tied into those uh, on a regular basis as part of a staff group that uh, I think that's what I miss the most. Yeah, some of the big things, playing Christmas at Roy Thompson Hall and things like that are fantastic, but it's really when you get out in the community and uh, we have a incredibly broad country and so when you got to travel and meet people and uh, share the passion with them um, that those are huge memories for me. Absolutely a bit of an understatement there that it's an incredibly broad country it's massive isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I can't it fathom how big it is from just being from a little island. <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> Fantastic. And so as a soloist, when you're choosing repertoire to play as a soloist, what sort of things do you consider um, when you're choosing a, a solo to perform? Sure. Well, let me just sort of step back and tell, say what kind of player I had to decide to be. So I followed in the staff band an incredible group of trombone soloists. Robert Merritt, who in the 70s stood at Royal Albert Hall and played Word of Grace and just was legend. Clarence White, who played uh, Bluebells of Scotland at Royal Albert Hall and was legend. Kevin Hayward, who played Joshua, made that his own. So I was following this incredible line of soloists, and I wasn't one of them. And so I decided early on, my uh, hopefully my legacy would just be that I would be a player that never let the band down. I was always prepared. My part was always there. They never had to worry about the part. And so I spent the first sort of bunch of years as the principal trombone focusing on that. But when I became a soloist, um, it really was driven by my mom. My dad was a staff bandsman. My mom, she appreciates music that doesn't really sort of get it. And so the band would play something and she'd look at my dad and go, how did he do? You know, was Craig okay? You know, was he terrible? And, uh, and it was an old Norman Bearcroft line because um, they went to Toronto Temple with him. It's like, he would play something for the old lady in the back of the, of the hall, a tune that she would know. So out of that, as I became a soloist, the band always had some, the sap band always had some great sort of virtuoso soloists. I was gonna be the guy that just played a tune for mom and that played a tune that not only my mom would get or understand, but many others who aren't necessarily musical would get. Something that they would know the words or they'd be able to easily grasp sort of the sentiment behind it. So as I played solos and selected solos, that really became my driving force. And so I joked that, you know, the solos were for mom, but they were for the moms in the crowd, the people that just needed that moment of a tune, a tune that they could lock into, maybe know the words, and just have those moments of, of, of relax, of repose. Excellent stuff. That's great. Now, I think it was a few months ago now, but I saw an excellent post from yourself on Facebook debating the question, should the Salvation Army still have brass bands? And I was really fascinated. It sort of grabbed my attention by your answers. It was really positive and uplifting. So I'd like to sort of discuss your sure. thoughts on that and uh, why we should have brass bands. So I'm going to ask the question to you. Should the Salvation Army still have brass bands? If so, why? Sure. And uh, just out of just so you know, that uh, article that originally I put on the internet was actually published in the UK Salvationist uh, last weekend, the June fifth issue, I believe. So for those who want to see the whole thing, um, it's in the June fifth of the UK Salvationist. Um, but yes, I believe we should have brass bands, and uh, none of it is for archaic reasons of tradition or any of those things but I believe it fits into the current mission of the Salvation Army. And in that article, I spelled out a, a few things that uh, were important of it, just off the top of my head. Um, discipleship. Uh, we have opportunity to have the members of the core, members of the band at the hall once a week. They get devotional training. They get training into the music they're making and the meaning behind it. And they participate in worship. That's discipleship. Um, there's mentorship. I mentioned it before. I sat beside this, this older gentleman, Don Giles in the band, and he taught me a lot about being a Christian, about being a young man, about being a musician. So there's that mentorship. Um, I think outreach and evangelism, uh, there's lots of things we need to get out of our cores again, get out of our buildings. And the great thing about the brass band is it's so portable. 
Um, and literally, you can take four players and get out there and draw people's attention. And again, the reason you want to draw people's attention is so you can talk to them and build relationship. So there's the evangelism. There's the support for worship. Um, adding musicians to our singing when we can sing again is huge and is part of that helping them sing their faith and it supports worship. Uh, public relations. We are known especially over here at Christmas time, and I think in the UK as well, are standing around the kettle or the bubble. Um, it's a huge public relations brand. I'm a business guy. If I have a thing that the public uh, really associates with my brand and supports financially when they see it, I'm going to invest in that all year long either. So I think there's so many different reasons. It's also a community of faith. Um, it's inclusive. We have many ministries in the Salvation Army that are specific men's ministry, women's ministry, ministry to children, ministry to youth, ministry to young people's couples, all of those things. Our bands, our choirs, our worship teams, those are the groups that are open to all. So you have young and old together, you have men and women together, you have all kinds of inclusion, race doesn't matter, and none of those things matter. What matters is that you're there and you're belonging. And I think we underestimate that today, but I think it'll be really important as we come out of COVID, People want community. This will be controversial maybe. I no longer need to hear the great sermon and things like that because I have more access online to great Bible teaching in that than ever. What I need most is personal care and community. And that's what our music groups provide. And I think that's what brass bands do really well. I mean, it's all also genius, uh, the fact that the model that you can switch instruments as a player, you know, you don't need to learn like go from a brass to a woodwind or just the model of flexibility in that is huge as well. And kids like to learn it. Over here, we find schools aren't uh, putting as much money in the arts. It's a great opportunity to get the community in for music lessons on brass instruments, which we know so well. And so I think brass banding, I think is about to have a renaissance. And so this is why I think it's exciting. And so when I hear some bands I know are like, oh, we're not sure how we're gonna come out of this. This is your opportunity to get out in your community and to show the Salvation Army just how important you are to outreach and evangelism and getting out of our building. And so I encourage bandmasters, bands, people like get ready, start practicing because these days ahead are your time and uh, it's going to be exciting. And so I hope, I hope our bands sort of will embrace that excitement. Yes, we might lose some numbers. We might've had 20, we may have only 15 players because people are worried about COVID and things like that. Doesn't matter, take what you've got and get out of your building and you'll grow. And uh, that's what I'm excited about. Fantastic and wonderful words and a great message there to take forwards as we rebuild and, and reassemble what we've mm -hmm. sort of lost during this time perhaps and uh, going forwards to really remember that mission and why we do things. So thank you so much for that. It was great to hear and uh, great to hear the enthusiasm as well that you really do truly believe that. We're going to go a little bit more lighthearted now to get to know a little bit more about you, perhaps some areas that we haven't spoken about yet. And uh, I hope some questions that you've never, ever been asked before or probably <laughs> even thought about. So these are our quirky, quick, fast questions. Have you got a favourite Salvation Army composer? Ooh, um... Yeah, Ball and Barrowcroft, the two Bs. Excellent. Now going even more specific, have you got a favourite band piece? Um, I mean, Journey to Freedom is not necessarily Salvation Army, but that's my favourite piece. And honestly, I've never played it all my years in the staff band. 
Um, so Journey to Freedom is my favorite piece and I would love to play it. So if anyone's going to play it, you need a ringer on second trombone. I'm your guy. Excellent. Have you got a favorite passage of scripture? Uh, yeah, it's First John in chapter four. Um, and it's about loving your brother. Um, again, I have brothers. And so uh, um, it's a little more meaningful. Sometimes you didn't want to love them and they were hard to love. Sometimes I'm hard to love a lot of the time. And so I love First John chapter four, just because if I know God and I love God, I got to love my brother and not just my physical brother. I need to love my brother, my sister, the people I come in contact with. And I think that's a, an important message for all of us these days, not just the Salvation Army, but just for humans in general. Let's just start loving people again. So we've had a lot of your favorite questions. So I'm now going to ask you about some of your least favorites. <laughs> First up, what's your least favorite breakfast food? Oh, grapefruit. Okay. And that probably leads very nicely onto my next question, which is genuinely your least favorite fruit. Ah, uh, grapefruit. Grapefruit, good. <laughs> nice, a double. Okay. Uh, carnations or echinaceas? Oh, carnations. Okay. Fabric or leather sofas? Leather, because you can just wipe off your spills easy. <laughs> okay. Um, now talking maybe about this is something you spill on the sofa. What's the best water you've ever tasted? Oh, I'm a San Pellegrino guy. So anytime I can have San Pellegrino, I'm good. Excellent. Now, of course, as this is our Canadian special episode, I've got a few Canadian sort of themed questions for you next. So Canada is known internationally as being a country of real natural beauty. In your opinion, where's the most beautiful place you can visit in the territory? Uh, Moraine Lake in uh, in Alberta. Uh, you go up to Banff and then Lake Louise and then just about 15 minutes north of there. And there's beautiful snow-capped mountains, pristine water. There's no place like it. Have you got a favorite Canadian of all time? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd have to say Wayne Gretzky. We're a hockey country and number 99, Wayne Gretzky's the best uh, hockey player to ever live and play the game. So uh, he grew up half an hour from where I live now. And so Wayne Gretzky's the man. What's the best brand of maple syrup? Okay, so about 40 minutes from me is the town of St. Jacob's, and that is Mennonite country. So you go to St. Jacob's, you buy any of this maple syrup from the Mennonite folks there, it'll be the best you've ever had. Words of wisdom, indeed. Have you got a favorite native animal? Oh, the beaver. We're Canadian. That's our, that's our guy. You know, he's scrappy. He, you know makes a mess of things to build his dams but you know the scrappy beaver that's the canadian animal and uh, do you think the beaver would make a good trombonist uh probably because with those teeth he wouldn't be able to play a lot so he's you know count the rest really well and you know he's what flap his tail around and cause a disturbance like most trombone players do during the rests <laughs> excellent and uh, final question what's the ideal height for a totem pole in your opinion Ooh, ideal height, uh, I think, is actually about 35 feet. Excellent. I'm glad you just I, had that one to roll off the tongue. <laughs> I, I, I said that in a way that sounded like I knew what I was talking about, but uh, I have seen them, especially out in northern BC, and was trying to think, like, how many of me could I fit there? And there's about six of them, so 35, 36 feet. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, thank you ever so much. And uh, we'll hear from you a little bit later in the episode when we put your mind to the test in Band Mastermind. Thanks, Craig. That's excellent stuff. But now it's time for our analysis. It's my great pleasure to welcome Philip Raymond onto the podcast. Philip 
He's a fantastic musician and a great teacher, and I really enjoyed recording this interview into quite a unique piece of the Salvation Army's repertoire. That is Morley Calvert's Canadian Folk Song Suite. How are you, Phil? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. This is uh, quite the honour. Not at all. It's great to have you here and really looking forward to uncovering some of the secrets behind this piece over the next uh, 25 minutes or so. It's an absolute gem of the Salvation Army repertoire and comes from the pen of Morley Calvert, perhaps a composer that we haven't heard lots of music from, really, but everything he does produce is a very high quality. Could you tell us a little bit about the background of Morley Calvert and uh, where this piece fits into his compositional output? Uh, well, Morley Calvert, actually, it's it's interesting connection. He was born in Brantford, Ontario, which is about a half an hour down the, the highway from here. I think you guys call it the motorway, um, but uh, not far away. And then uh, during after his high school years, I believe it was, he moved to uh, Montreal, uh, which, of course, is a major cultural center in Canada. At that point in time, it was probably the major cultural center in Canada, a real diverse mix of English and French. Um, he went there and he went to school at McGill University, uh, which is one of the top art schools in Canada. Um, he got uh, a couple of degrees there and, and the entire time while he was studying, uh, he was involved at Montreal Citadel. Uh, I'm told he was the songster leader for a few years and then he took over uh, Montreal Citadel band and I think it was 1960. Uh, he led that band for about 10 years. So he had a, he had a pretty good stretch there all through the 60s. Um, but the entire time he was, and this might explain why his compositional output army-wise wasn't, wasn't huge. Um, he was a really busy guy. Uh, he was involved at the core with those groups, but he also was uh, teaching high school the entire time, which can be a demand on, on your time. Uh, running all the musical groups on the side, as well as teaching. Um, he was writing curriculum. I think he wrote a wind band curriculum for high school at one point. Uh, he, he, was, he was studying for his degree. And then while he was at McGill, he started a concert band. Uh, he started a community concert band during the 60s. He led a group called the Imperial Singers. And he established a music camp, a summer music camp uh, called the Monteregian uh, music camp, I think it was for high school students over the summer. He wrote um, Canadian folk song suite towards the latter years of his Quebec years. He, he was in Quebec, I think, until 1972. Um, and he wrote uh, Canadian folk song suite in um, 1967. It was for uh, Canada's centenary celebration of uh, becoming a country. And so he was asked to write something for the Earl's Court Citadel Band because uh, they were supposed to uh, play at the World's Fair 67, Expo 67. And they wanted uh, them, they wanted to have a, an original piece of Canadian music. So that's what they asked uh, Morley for. And that's what they got. They got, they got a pretty good piece. <laughs> So we're now going to dip into the score and look at these uh, movements. So, of course, for those that don't know the piece, the piece is in three different movements, all quite distinctive, and uh, draws from three Canadian folk songs, as the title implies. Uh, yeah. So let, let's uh, go straight into the first movement. That would yeah. make sense. Um, yeah. 
how's your French pronunciation? I hope it's better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure I butcher it. I took French up until grade nine uh, in high school, and then I got out of there as quickly as I could. Uh, but uh, Marianne Sanvatao Moulin is how I would probably pronounce it. But I'm sure if I were to pronounce it that way in Quebec, I would be laughed out of the room. So there you go. Sounds much more convincing than I could do. <laughs> so do you know much about the background of this tune, sort of where it comes from or uh, some of its associations, perhaps? Um, yeah, it's it's a Quebec folk tune. Uh, the interesting thing about this piece is it says Canadian folk song suite, but it really only touches on two provinces in Canada. Um, and it, the bookends are from Quebec. In Quebec folk tunes, a lot of them were derived from French tunes that kind of made their way over in the culture over hundreds of years. Uh, but this one's called, uh, in, in English, it's called Marianne Went to the Mill. And a lot of the culture in Quebec, and especially in the early pioneer years, revolved around uh, mills. There's a huge uh, hydroelectric um, power source in Quebec running rivers everywhere. And so they would tap into this by building these water mills um, that produced power and that, that were grain mills as well. So they would, they would use those. So there's a lot of folk songs from Quebec that have to do with you know, going to the mill or being at the mill or working at the mill. I have actually the words here. Are you familiar with them at all? No, no, actually, so please feel I'll, free to share. I'll give you the short uh, version of the story. Uh, Marianne went to the mill uh, to fill her sack with grain and she had her donkey with her. And while she had the donkey tied up behind the mill, it was uh, attacked and eaten by a wolf. <laughs> so that's, that's the story behind the tune, which is probably a first in uh, Salvation Army uh, literature, I'm pretty sure. The other thing about the first movement is that he actually wrote the first movement separately uh, as part of a brass quintet that he wrote years before. So I think it was 1961, he wrote a suite for brass uh, quintet called, I think, Suite from the Monterigian Hills. So he had that movement in his back pocket for a few years. And I guess when he got the request to, to write the suite, he thought this would be a, a good first movement. Excellent. So looking at the actual music now, we, we start off with this sort of cascading uh, perfect fourth figure moving down throughout the band. Can you talk yeah. us through what happens musically in this introduction and uh, through to A? Well, I, I mean, it, it really grabs your attention right off the bat uh, with, the, with the high cornets and the, the cymbal and triangle. It's this really bright sound all of a sudden. Um, not a common way, I think, to start a, a piece in um, certainly in Salvation Army brass banding at the time. So it, it kind of grabs your attention. And like you said, it cascades down and they gradually add voices until you get to, I think it's about the fifth, the fifth measure, the end of the fourth measure, the fifth measure is when the full band's in with some weight with a fortissimo. And then there's these block chords and rhythms for the next four measures where everything just kind of sits in nice and, 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 heavy together although most early bands played it very very tight <laughs> very short but i don't think that's really what he intended
fantastic. So that takes us through to letter A. And I presume here in the solo cornet, this is our first iteration of the tune. Could you just talk us through now these next couple of sections, how uh, Calvert approaches uh, this tune? Well, the interesting thing about this whole score and something that I really admire about Morley Calvert is um, it's really easy to see in his scores uh, what is going on because everything is just so cleanly and clearly laid out. He really knew what he was doing um, with orchestration. Um, I think the fact that he did a lot of wind band composing and conducting in some ways might have made it easy for him uh, to compose a brass band score and not let it get too cluttered or too heavy. He wasn't afraid to write things fairly sparsely. Um, for example, at, at A section, you've got the solo cornets who are playing the tune with the, with the echo um, in, in there. And all he has accompanying it are an E-flat bass um, or two and the baritones. And that's it. And uh, he was not afraid to rely on, on the, the baritones. And uh, we can see a few times in this piece. He, uh, if I was a baritone player, this would be one of my favorite pieces because there's all kinds of stuff in here for them. flat uh, up to F uh, concert. Uh, so just a little rise there to, to um, you know, kind of brighten things up a little bit and keep the, uh, the listener's attention. He does that a lot uh, through the score, especially in the last movement. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, clutter things up too much in, uh, in this first movement. He just kind of puts in the crescendo and, and a rise up to the new key. And, uh, and then all of a sudden you have this nice bright trombone melody that uh, comes in at C for a couple of measures. times in this piece where to me it really shows that wind band music was a big part of his life and that I think he was really familiar with the works of for example Holst and Granger. Um, when I listen to D section it sounds like something straight out of Lincolnshire Posey. The, just the way he rolls the, the melodies around with the tubas and the, the mellows the middle of the band. By the time he gets to, to F, he, he starts this kind of um, a slow build. I kind of imagine in my mind at F that this is, this is the part where the wolf is now sneaking up on the donkey. Uh, so you have, you, like you said, you have this tread from the, uh, the tubas and you have this cool little hemiola figure coming in with the, the euphoniums and baritones over top again. And then it comes back later 
with uh, the bass trombone, hooray for the bass trombone playing the bass line. Um, and then the horns and the first cornets coming over top of that. And I, again, it's just all great examples of scoring that at the time he wasn't afraid to use the color parts on their own. He wasn't afraid to use the middle of the band that's often neglected or, or given off beats and stuff like that. Um, just really, really classy and imaginative. So, and then he has this, this really nice uh, pyramid that comes through in G, which at the time would have been probably fairly uh, cutting edge harmonies, uh, going through some of the tritones and stuff like that that he uses through there. Um, and then again, he just locks everything in with this unison. And then he dials it right back again for, uh, for going into H. And what I really love is, is to dramaticism i don't know if that's a word but these these whole unison rest moments bring the space and the music really adds to that drama for sure you know a lot of people think when they look at this first movement they think oh this is easy music you know just about any band could play this but i think you to play it well and to be comfortable with those rests and the thin scoring and all those kinds of things you actually need quite a good band to to carry this off it's definitely not out of place in the in the festival series that's for sure you know, there's a little bit of a uh, little bit of evil in here. You have those minor seconds uh, clashing in the, the muted cornets, um, which is almost kind of like a warning. There's a wolf coming and it, the tube is representing the donkey just kind of nonchalantly out behind the mill. And I, I don't think there's a better instrument there to represent a donkey other than that solo tuba, is there really? <laughs> no, I think that's I think that's apropos. That sort of brings us on to, well, the closing section of this movement through to letter I and a scintillating climax, really. Oh, absolutely. I feel like the end of this movement is actually when when the uh, the action goes down. That's it. The wolf gets the donkey. So you've got this this build over I think it's about six or seven measures you're going from a mezzo piano up to a fortissimo you've got bass notes that are going down in octaves every two measures he's got that figure that he repeats three times almost like it increases in uh, um, insistency each time and that's the way the way it feels you know it goes especially when it goes up in pitch for the second entry you've got uh, trombones up on a b flat uh, against a, a solo cornet playing an A. Um, that's going to create a little bit of sizzle for sure. So that brings us on to our second movement, and I, I can pronounce this one. She's like the swallow, and this uh, <laughs> tune comes from Newfoundland. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, the background of this melody and uh, you know how it contrasts the first movement? Sure. First of all, I'll do my friends from uh, The Rock a, a favor, and I'll tell you that it's pronounced Newfoundland. She's like the swallow is about uh, a, a maiden who had her love. She picked flowers for him and, and wanted to bring him gifts and stuff like that. And in the meantime, um, her, uh, her man found uh, somebody else that he was interested in. So she was heartbroken. The, the modal 
um, shape uh, of the tune really kind of reinforces that sadness. It's actually, I think, written in the Dorian mode. Um, Morley, um, he scored it out in, in the minor, but if you look all the way through, there's raised sixes all the way through, lots of C sharps in the B flat instruments, which would indicate it's, uh, it's in, uh, I think, concert D, Dorian mode. I wouldn't even want to pull a, pull it apart too much, just because um, I, I feel like I wouldn't be doing it justice to try to, to analyze it that closely. He uh, he throws in this beautiful counter melody in the euphoniums at B, that uh, if you're a euphonium player, you just love this section, like it's just gold. You know, when, when you hear a tune and it's just harmonized so well, you can't imagine it any other way. Um, that's to me what Morley Calvert does with this movement. He just, he harmonizes it so differently, but so beautifully. I, I would never in a million years try to do an arrangement of this tune because I just wouldn't be able to hear it any differently than the way, uh, than the way Morley's har harmonized it. Just so, so sad, but also so beautiful all at once. I didn't know until Brian Burdett a few years ago came and did a rehearsal at our core and he rehearsed the second movement and he uh, put us on to the words from uh, the songbook, song number 145. Uh, it is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be, that God's own son should come from heaven and die to save a child like me. So you could use that second movement very effectively for a Sunday morning selection or in a program as a standalone. So for the third movement, we once again journey back to Quebec. And uh, well, we've got some French pronunciation again, so I'm going to hand over to yourself for this. <laughs> this one's a little easier. Uh, Jean-Tan Le Moulin. Um, again, it's about the mill. So it's, uh, it literally translates to, I hear the mill. Um, so again, you've got, you've got mill music. Um, and it's this song has no story to it. It's it's actually in some ways it's a little bit of uh, gibberish. Um, the French lyrics maybe make a little more sense, but if you if you translate it into English, it says, "I hear the mill wheel ticka ticka taka." <laughs> My father is having a house built. I don't know what one has to do with the other, <laughs> but but um, I, I don't know. It's it's strange. There's a, a part about 
what do you have in your apron? It's a pie made of three pigeons. Let's sit down and eat it. <laughs> those, those are the actual words. <laughs> Tasty. Tasty. Yeah. I've never had it. Uh, so I, I guess I can't knock it. <laughs> no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'd want to. Looking at the state of some of the pigeons you see in like <laughs> London and Birmingham places, not sure if I'd want to eat them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this does so well on concert programs because it's just it starts simply and morally is does a, a fantastic job of just gradually cranking up the intensity section by section um almost like you know you're you're there at the mill and the mill is starting to go faster and faster and faster and it's almost like you're afraid this mill is going to go so fast that it starts to fall apart um the, the imagery you know, the really basic imagery of it is so easy to convey to an audience. Um, and it's just, it's exciting music to listen to. Mostly what he does in the first part is he introduces the tune really simply. Uh, again, baritones get the tune at A, which is unusual, I think, at that time in Salvation Army literature, uh, you know, with the flugel. Again, he's he's not shying away from color parts and, and middle of the band. Modulates up a, a, a key, um, one step at B. Uh, modulates up again, one step, uh, halfway through C. He's basically written a set of variations that are, that are so simple yet so entertaining. Um, it's just the, the genius of it is not trying to go crazy with it, I guess. He just, he does little things each time that are a little bit different. He's like, oh, this is something new, but I can still hear the tune and I still can understand where this is going. So it's, it's just amazing how, how he does things so simply. And then to sort of reinforce this agricultural nature of the tune, we almost go into sort of hoedown feel uh, with a hand clapping section. Could you talk us through sort of the excitement and the novelty and what happens in the music in this section? Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. You kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, I've been told um, that this section is supposed to represent, um, you know, uh, almost like a hoedown or a country party where you've got fiddles and people are singing and stomping and clapping. And that's literally uh, what's, what's happening here. Um, it's interesting that, that I, I could be wrong, but I think it's the first instance of hand clapping in a uh, Salvation Army score. Um, I, I'd be happy to be corrected if I was wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was, it was something new. And apparently when it first came out, a lot of people didn't like it. <laughs> they, they thought it was a little too adventurous. So they would substitute little percussion things. there we go our listeners can uh, tweet us in if they know of a piece that came before this that does have hand clapping in uh, bonus points to anyone that that finds one so after that section 
we once again crank up the tempo and we come into these uh, chromatic movements in the cornet section that sounds a little bit John Williams to me, perhaps in a very simplistic, naive way. But uh, well, can you talk no, us through I, this? I think that's a, an apt description. You know, John Williams likes to use those, those parallel triads. Um, but um, it's interesting that you say crank up the tempo again, because I think this is actually the first time in the movement that that Morley writes in a tempo uh, and a cello rando. Um, that's not to say that many bands haven't <laughs> sped up before getting to this point. Uh, in fact, a lot of recordings I've heard, uh, they, they start too quick and then it gets a little bit ludicrous by the end. But uh, it's, just a, it's just a little um, a cello rando and um, a lot of bands will overcook this. And I think the reason is so they can get to a nice comfortable double tonguing tempo because it's not double tonguing tempo at the beginning. It should be a nice, easy, you know, single tonguing tempo. Uh, but there's always that in between where players aren't necessarily comfortable with one or the other. I have a really bad crossover between uh, double tonguing and single tonguing. So I would, I would want that, that accelerando to be probably significant. Um, but uh, guess who's playing the melody at that point? It's the horns and the baritones again, all in unison, which is no mean feat. Uh, to have them playing in those two different ranges. You've got baritones up in the top of their range playing G's and F's, which are going to go sharp against, uh, you know, your horns playing more in the middle of their comfortable range. Um, so you got to have a good band again to, to get that to work. Either that or you're going to have a lot of players laying out. <laughs> I've seen both happen. <laughs> yeah, certainly not an easy ride for the uh, second baritone part there on those top G's and around that area. That's a uh, challenging scoring. Again, it's remarkably simple, but effective writing all the way through. So we get to section T in my score, P.O. Mosso, and we're yeah. uh, tempo marked at 104, uh, sorry, 144 crotchets yeah. per minute. So could you talk us through these next couple of sections and how uh, Calvert really builds the intensity here and, and what happens in terms yeah. of the modulations basically from here to the end of the piece it's almost like uh, one continuous ramping up um, of, of volume and dynamics um, which is which is what gets the listener just kind of really excited i mean you're at a forte you have to be careful if you're playing in a band that's playing this because you got these exciting um rhythms uh unison rhythms all through the band accompanying the the melody at h by the time you get to the presto in the next section, you've got to you've got to get up to a fortissimo that's still going to be manageable, and you're going from D minor up to B flat minor, and then you're going up from B flat minor to C minor. So again, he's just modulating up and and raising the excitement level uh, each time. section is then marked furioso and the energy really doesn't die here even though the scoring in the last few bars drops down to just that single euphonium before we have that final gesture 
to end the piece. Could you just talk us through this very final conclusion? Yeah, for sure. Um, he, uh, again, he, uh, he takes the tempo up another notch. I think in the original manuscript, he only had it marked as 160. It's marked 166 in the, uh, in the published version. So I don't know if that was his decision or somebody at editorial thought it would be great to add that little extra excitement, but uh, apparently everybody wants it faster each time it gets, uh, it gets published. Uh, but you've got uh, this, uh, this Furioso with the cornets are all on the upper register playing this, you know, it's, it's all syncopation, but there's two different syncopations happening. You've got one in the, uh, in the cornets and you've got a separate syncopation that sometimes lines up in the horns, which uh, is, can be a little bit of a trap for, for bands. And again, you, you've got to have people who are really confident in their rhythms all the way through, but and then he's got, he's got the symbol and the triangle again, like at the opening of the piece, providing that that brilliance, right? So it's almost like it comes full circle, but with now with with you know these uh, these syncopated uh, movements, and then it all just drops out completely, and you've got one little euphonium popping in. Usually bands will just have one euphonium play this. It's it's not marked solo or solely in in my part. Um, it's not also not marked piano in the published version, but he had it marked piano in the uh, in the manuscript. So it's just this little uh, little pop in from the euphonium, and then the cornets start into this run that just uh, you know it just soars up to this this high D at the end for the for the solo cornets, which also wasn't in the original manuscript, interesting enough. He, uh, in the original manuscript, he only had the soprano going up to an A, and he had the, uh, the solo cornets in the last measure played an A quarter note and then a D in the staff. So, and, and I think if you listen to the earliest recordings of it, it's hard to hear that run sort of finish up on the end, unless you've really got somebody who can smoke it on a soprano. Um, and on the uh, on the manuscript, it's written in pen. So I don't know if it was Morley that wrote that in on the manuscript before he sent it in uh, for publishing, or if there was a conversation about that at the time. But uh, once you get the, the solo cornets in there, it's uh, added excitement and sound, but also added risk <laughs> when when you've got all these. Uh, uh, you know, two or maybe three solo cornets plus a soprano are trying to slur up to this high note chromatically. And he's got a, an accent on the last note, but he also has the cornet slurring into it. So I would not want to be, you know, the person at the end of a program trying to play that nice and cleanly. Um, but I, I've heard lots of bands carry it off. It's just, it, and it's such an exciting end to the piece. No big chord or anything like that. Um, Morley was confident doing his own thing and ending the piece the way he wanted to. Didn't need a big long, long chord or anything like that. Just boom, and it's over just like that. And people sit there for a second stunned and then they, there's usually a huge applause after. This is amazing writing. Fantastic. Well, thanks ever so much, Phil, for that insight into the piece and uh, on our Canadian special episode as well, a little bit of Canadian history as well. It's been really great talking to you and thank you ever so much for giving up your time to join us today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Well, it's now time for Bun Mastermind at Home. I'm going to play you a short excerpt of a piece of Salvation Army music. If you know what it is, then either message us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter, or contact us on Instagram. If you're the first person to let us know, then you'll get the mention in the next episode. That brings me quite nicely onto the congratulations for last episode's winners. Congratulations to Kevin Whittingham, who correctly guessed the episode I played was indeed Bramwell Cole's The Divine Pursuit. Congratulations to Nick Brill, who guessed the exact CD, which was King of Kings. So well done to you both. That's fantastic. So, without further ado, here is the Band Mastermind at Home episode for this episode. So, let us know if you think you know. And don't forget, for the extra bonus brownie points, let us know who was playing there and what album that's taken from. And now it's time for Craig Lewis to join us once again and put his mind to the test in Band Mastermind. Craig, how are you feeling about competing in Band Mastermind? I feel really good. I have a mind of useless band information. <laughs> Excellent. What's, what's your score that you're sort of aiming for? What would you feel pleased with? Well, I, I won't guess that far ahead, but I feel good. Excellent. Well, we'll see in a few minutes. So, Craig Lewis, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? Yes. Excellent. Then your time starts now, what is the title of the Ivor Basanko March, which features his own melody, I'll Go in the Strength of the Lord? Marching Onward. Correct. What is the name of the song that the New York staff band always finishes their festivals with? Rock of Ages. Correct. What decade was Dean Goffin born? 1940s. Uh, incorrect, I'm afraid. Which country was Eric Lysden born in? Sweden. Correct. Who was the author of the book Aspiration, The Life and Music of Emil Soderstrom? Aaron Holtz. Uh, incorrect, I'm afraid. Is Richard, uh, is Richard Slater, father of Salvation Army Music, buried in the county of Kent or the county of Sussex in the UK? County of Sussex. Incorrect, I'm afraid. 50-50 choice there. Uh, what is Derek Kane's original home call? Oh, it's up in Scotland. Uh, Paisley. Uh, incorrect, but very close. Which bandmaster of the ISB received the Order of the Founder in 1975? Bernard Adams. Correct. Uh, which well-known English essay composer served as Golden State Divisional Music Director in the USA Western Territory from 1984 to 1986? Chris Mallet. Uh, incorrect, but again, a good guess. The recording of The Gospel Train, released in 1971 by the Canadian staff band, featured which vocal soloist? Douglas Court. Correct. Uh, which well-known brass composer is currently the commanding officer at Cambridge Sittal Court in the UK? Martin Cordner. Correct. Well, Craig, that gives you a total of 
six points, which is a very, very good score for Bandmaster Mind indeed. Puts you in the top half of the, the uh, league table, certainly. Excellent. So we'll just go through the answers that you didn't quite get there. Uh, the first one, what decade was Dean Goffin born? It was 1916, so I'd have given you 1910s. Uh, the author of the book Aspiration, The Life and Music of Emil Söderström was by Robert Goetz. Um, Richard Slater, father of Salvation Army music, was buried in the county of Kent, not Sussex. <laughs> unlucky guess there. Um, Derek Kane's original home core was Hamilton. Mm. And the well-known Salvation Army composer that served as Golden State Divisional Music Director in the USA Western Territory in the 80s was Terry Camsey. Ah, oh. Terry Camsey actually wrote a solo for me that's published in the general series, This I Know. Uh, oh, I should have known that. But this you didn't know. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Very good. Well, as I said, a fantastic score there. And uh, thank you so much for joining us on this uh, Canada special footy score. It's been really, really great to speak to you. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Matthew. It's been great. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for in this episode of Fully Scored. Thank you once again to Craig and Phil for giving up your time to chat, but also for your words of wisdom and encouragement. Really appreciate that. To our Canadian listeners, let us know if there was something quintessentially Canadian that we didn't cover today. And to all our other listeners around the globe, let us know if you learned something about the country that you didn't know before. If you're not already following us on social media, then find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for extra exclusive snippets from interviews, information about upcoming episodes and interviews, and maybe even a glimpse behind the scenes. Now, just before we bid our final farewells, a couple more thanks. Thanks, as always, to fully scored producer extraordinaire Simon Gash for all the work he's put into organising, editing and producing this podcast. Thanks to you listening at home too, or wherever you're listening from. We appreciate it. Goodbye. God bless.